Listen now to the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So reads the Word of God. I love it when a text of Scripture that seems to be bound up with an entirely different time and place, yields relevant and practical fruit as we linger with it, as we inspect its branches, 
Our passage today is such a text. We just read verses 22 through 25 talking about having faith in God and prayer and forgiveness. Wonderful instruction, but as we read through it, we can wonder, what does that have to do with verses 1 to 21? We really would enjoy experiencing everything that verses 22 to 25 describe. Hearing Jesus give instruction. We love that thought about prayer. We resonate with the need for forgiveness. But how did we get there? How is that the instruction when Peter says, look, the fig tree is withered? Well, let's see. Let's walk through this passage in four steps. We have a few slides prepared for you this morning. This is the first, just giving you the four um, points of our outline today that are listed for you there in your bulletin as well. We see the, the triumphal entry in verses 1 through 11. Then we see the cursing of the fig tree split into two parts, verses 12 to 14, and then coming back to it in 20 and 21. In between, we see the commotion in the temple, we'll call it, verses 15 to 19, and then the teaching emphasis that comes in 22 to 25, where we're looking for the connection. All right, so that's where we're headed this morning. Let's get started with this triumphal entry. This is, after all, Palm Sunday, right? The first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. And he's doing so, we'll find out, on Passover week. So the population of Jerusalem is no doubt surging for the celebration that is happening during this week. Many were on hand. We read about Bethany and Bethphage here in verse 1. They're only a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, we're told, in John 11 near the crest of the Mount of Olives, which runs along the eastern border of, of Jerusalem on the other side of the Kidron Valley. And just outside the city then is when the action starts play, taking place. Verse 1, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. That's how the story begins. Perhaps this was a prearranged plan. Jesus did have friends in Bethany that we know. This is where he raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11. But none of the gospel writers give us that impression that this was an advanced plan that was just being enacted. Still, I can't help wondering, and I ask, wouldn't you love to know how these folk were prepared for this encounter? For that to be an okay statement, was it an immediate insight on their part? Oh, the Lord has need of it. Let it go. Or were they expecting this somehow? Who understands? Who knows? But it's an interesting story, and it's starting to give us the impression that Jesus is coming out. He is making himself known finally. It's not going to be silence any longer. It's going to be, this is my calling. 
Verse 7 continues on. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. They knew what was going on. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This wasn't a strange scene for these people. It's not something they weren't familiar with. Historians tell us that a similar thing happened in the days of Judas Maccabeus, just about 150 years earlier. But even earlier than that, 2 Kings chapter 9, when Ahab was king in Israel, he told the commanders of army when Elisha's messenger was actually announcing that Jehu was succeeding Ahab, he told the commanders of Israel's army in 2 Kings 9, And wrote there, then in haste, every man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Israel understood the expression that was being made here. They knew what they were doing in laying their cloaks on the colt and then putting palm branches on the ground. The people here are doing the same thing as they saw in Jehu's day when he was succeeding Ahab. Acknowledging Jesus as king. It's a clear expression from them. But they were acknowledging even more than that. Verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us now. It's from Psalm 118. It's quoted this morning. Verses 25 and 26 from Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes to save us now. They're saying, this is the one who will save us as Jesus enters Jerusalem. They're saying, this is Messiah. He's king, yes, but he's God's promised one. Here's our salvation. Hosanna. Psalm 118 was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles in expectation of the coming of Messiah. Now it's being spoken here of Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem, riding on a donkey's colt, Fulfilling yet another prophecy in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Putting both thoughts together. Your king is coming to you with salvation. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So reads the Word of God. Then this crowd begins picking up not only Psalm 118 and the Feast of Tabernacles celebration, they begin picking up the affirmation that Bartimaeus had just offered, that Mark had just recorded at the very end of the previous chapter. You see it in the last few verses of chapter 10. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. These folks added, verse 10 here, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The one who is going to sit on David's throne is here. Hosanna in the highest. 
These folks were ready to roll. The kingdom had come. Their king was right now entering into his city. And they were part of it all. Centuries of waiting. Millennia of waiting. And it was finally here. It was coming to fruition right before their eyes, right before their yearning eyes. Can you imagine having been in Jerusalem that day? Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. The glory of God is returned. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the twelve. What? What? Pretty understated for a king, wouldn't you say? After all of this pomp and celebration, and he walks into the temple, and according to Mark's record, and we could see, we see in Luke that something else follows. There are many things going on here. But Mark is telling this story. From Mark's perspective, the thing that needs to be captured at this moment is Jesus, after all of that, walking into the temple, looking around, I can imagine speechless, and walking right back out. Can you imagine? What impact would that have? What would that have been communicating? Pretty understated for a king, but now... We're set up well for what follows. When we start seeing the king really acting like a king and not telling anybody, don't tell. Let's move on then to the cursing of the fig tree. That's next in Mark's telling of this story. Verse 12, 12 through 14 and 20 through 21. But look at verse 12. On the following day, when they were on their way back into the city from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And then Mark adds, for it was not the season for figs. What did he expect to find? He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, verse 14, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Mark makes note of that. This is a strange encounter, yes? Some wonder if it really happened. It just seems so unlike Jesus. A miracle of destruction and and of a little tree. It's odd. But it did happen. Verse 20 as they passed by the next morning, they, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Clearly, Jesus was making a point here. Almost certainly, it was a pretty unusual point as well. But... But what was it? What was the point he was making? Have faith 
it is not entirely easy to see. Some say he may have been looking for an early fig. A lot of writers make that suggestion, but this scene is not about Jesus being hungry. Surely not. Surely he's making a bigger point than that. He's hungry. There's no fig on the tree. He's a bit miffed, so he curses the tree. I don't think so. That's not the way Jesus works. And whatever point he's making, surely a bigger point than, than just hunger, whatever point it is, it's likely to be lost or obscured if this were the season for figs. But we don't know that yet. What we have to do is just look at how Mark tells the story here. And a very familiar structure that Mark used over and over again follows the triumphal entry passage. We called it, as we were studying Mark, the Mark and Sandwich. He mentions a subject, he goes to another subject, he comes back to the first subject, and in so doing, he wraps them together. Mark uses this familiar sandwich structure here to link this fig tree event with the scene that he inserts into the middle of it, namely what we call the cleansing of the temple. This structure turns the spotlight onto that action of Jesus, the cleansing of the temple, and it wraps it in a context-setting story of the cursing of the fig tree. In short, this tree has signs of life namely leaves, but no fruit, for it was not the season for figs. That's the striking feature of the cursing of the fig tree story. Had signs of life, but no fruit. But Mark then gives us the reason, for it was not the season for figs. So with that being the striking feature, that also sets us up for what to look for at the, as we look at through the insertion to identify any connections that they have between the story. Probably the connection is going to be something along the lines of describing the temple similarly. Signs of life, but no fruit. And something about being out of season. That's how Mark tells us. So with that set up, let's look at the next section, the commotion in the temple, verses 15 to 19, see where that takes us. Let's bite into the meat of the sandwich, we might say. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Really not unlike his expression toward the fig tree, if you can follow. But Jesus isn't just targeting the money changers here who are disrupting the court of the Gentiles with commerce. That doesn't appear to be his only focus. Verse 16 lets us know that. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus is doing more than just stopping the commerce. Jesus' focus here, and especially in Mark, as you read Mark alongside of the other gospel accounts, Jesus' focus here is not just on selfish profiteering of those who were in the temple area. He seems to be focusing more on the temple itself and its functioning. That's what we pick up by the fact that he even stopped other kinds of traffic going through the temple. Focusing on the temple itself and on its functioning somehow. Verse 17, and he was teaching them about 
its function, we might say. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? This is what the temple's for. This is how it's supposed to operate. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. It's this verse that has us labeling this event the cleansing of the temple. Jesus declares the temple's purpose from Isaiah 56, verse 7. Namely, it's a house of prayer for all peoples. And then he states what the people have made it into from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Namely, a den of robbers. So the proper function of the temple isn't being realized here despite all the activity that's happening there. Despite all the signs of life, there's no fruit. So its proper function just needs to be restored, right? Is that what we would expect? Its proper function just needs to be restored. Thus, we call it the cleansing of the temple. But I think the way Mark is telling the story here, it's not necessarily so. It's not necessarily a cleansing that's going on here. And the hint is right here in Jesus' own words. The primary meaning, for instance, of this word translated robbers is nationalist rebels. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a place of nationalist activity. Israel-centric, we might say. In the words of D.A. Carson in his commentary on this account in Matthew, the temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but they have made it into a nationalist stronghold. That's the sense of what Jesus is saying here as he gives instruction on the functioning of the temple. Jesus was focusing on a much bigger picture than just the profiteering of the money changers. To continue on, quoting Carson, the temple was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations, but had become the premier symbol, listen to this, of a superstitious belief that God would protect and rally his people irrespective of their conformity to his will. And Carson completes his thought by saying the temple would therefore be destroyed. A couple of chapters over in Mark's gospel, chapter 13, warming up for the Olivet Discourse, that's exactly what's said. Teacher, look at these great stones. I tell you, not one of them will be left on another. This place is going to be destroyed. So the temple was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations, but it had become the premier symbol of a superstitious belief that God would protect and rally His people irrespective of their conformity to His will. The temple would therefore be destroyed. It was no longer the season for the temple. What these people needed, the temple could not provide. They needed new hearts, which is exactly what they had been promised in passages from the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel most notably. 
Bottom line, Mark's wrapping of Jesus' actions in the temple into his cursing of the fig tree is what helps us see that he's judging the temple, cursing the temple, not cleansing it, not restoring it to its old function. It's out of season now. The temple hasn't fulfilled its purpose, so now he will do that work instead. The temple will be destroyed, and Jesus will take on that role. God with us. The place of God's dwelling on earth. He'll become the temple, just as he said in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. The place where God dwells among us, where we're forgiven and cleansed and reconciled to God, it's in Jesus. Now, it's not in a location. And through the completion of his work here in Jerusalem, in this week, his people then will become the temple, the place of his dwelling in the world, the ones through whom his mission will be fulfilled. When we can see what Mark is doing here, when we can pick up on what he is telling us in this text, surely it makes better sense of the strong response of the authorities there in verse 18. They were seeking to destroy him. They knew what he was doing. They could see it. They've got to destroy this guy who is an opponent of the temple. And that's exactly what he was perceived to be as the week progressed. We also see it in their response of questioning his authority in verses 27 and 28, just a little beyond our passage. I really wanted to add in that section as well because it's helpful. But questioning the authority by which he does this, how does he think he's entitled to come into the temple and do what he just did? The authorities were asking that question. So it fits better not just with their response, it also fits better with statements Jesus himself made about the temple. I referred just a moment ago to chapter 13, verse 1. We haven't put these on slides because you can just turn the page. For some of you, it might even be on the same page. Chapter 13, verse 1, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This makes Jesus sound like an enemy of the temple. And remember some of the false testimony that's made about him in the trial? Just look over to the next chapter. Chapter 14, verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another. Not made with hands. Go on to the next chapter, 15, verse 29 and 30. Jesus was on the cross. Those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. you believe it? Save yourself and come down from the cross. R.T. France wrote in his commentary on Mark, it is likely that among the many factors leading to Jesus' death, 
the one which most united all elements of the Jewish people against him was that he was perceived as an enemy, an opponent of the temple. This is a theme, France continued, which will develop through the rest of Mark's story, reaching its climax in the bystander's jibe at Jesus on the cross, the one we just read from, John 15, or from Mark 15, followed by the tearing of the temple curtain, which is the next thing that happens after that derision while Jesus was on the cross. Followed by the tearing of the curtain. That's the next thing Mark records after this statement about Jesus being made fun of because he was going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, but he's hanging on a cross. People didn't see the connection between the two. But the one was the beginning of the other. Jesus' death is that from which he was going to return in three days, having now established a new temple. About this scene here, in Mark 11, Franz added, the first incident in the temple, this cleansing of the temple that we're calling it, might seem on the surface to be in favor of the temple rather than against it, protecting it from misuse and restoring it to its intended role as a house of prayer for all nations. But with hindsight, it could be seen, especially noting the reaction of the leaders, as the beginning of an increasingly explicit campaign against what the temple now stood for, the first demonstration of a judgment which must ultimately lead to the total destruction of the building itself. That's how he finished the thought. But we have to ask this morning, if Jesus is judging the temple, if Jesus is cursing the temple, how are the people, how are the nations going to meet with God and commune with Him? How is that going to happen without this place of His location in this world? That's what takes us to the teaching emphasis in verses 22 to 25 and helps us see the connection between this and what came before. It's a great question that has to arise if we've rightly understood what Mark is teaching us by his structuring of this section. How are the people, the nations, going to meet with God without a temple? That question is about the only one that could make sense of how Jesus' teaching in verses 22 to 25 fit in with the rest of the account. If we're not asking that question, we're not even going to understand what Jesus says here. So when we say, how are the people going to meet with God without a temple? Remember, Peter noted that the fig tree that Jesus cursed had withered, and Jesus' very first response to him was just mentioned a moment ago. Have faith in God. Jesus answered the disciples saying, have faith in God. What? Well, this is what replaces the temple. That's what Jesus said. That's what he's teaching. This is what replaces the temple, faith in the true and living God. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whatever you uh, whoever says to this mountain, by the way, much bigger than a fig tree, right? Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Engaging with God in prayer. Seeing Him act won't require the temple any longer. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Experiencing His forgiveness won't require the temple any longer. What Jesus is teaching is that prayer, powerful, effective prayer, won't be tied to the temple any longer. Our engagement with God won't depend on that location. It will be rooted in our faith in God. Verse 22. Through the work Jesus is about to do. And it will go with us wherever we go. Our engagement with God won't depend on that location. It will be rooted in our faith in God through the work Jesus is about to do. And it will then go with us wherever we go. This is much like what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Do you remember? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, meaning untethered from any one location. Worship will flow from the hearts of redeemed worshipers. His emphasis then, as he mentions receiving whatever you ask in prayer, is not so much on what you can ask for, as much as it is on where you can ask for it. You can pray even great prayers apart from this place, and God will still hear and answer. Your relationship with God will go with you wherever you go. Temple is coming along. That's what Jesus is teaching. The same is true about forgiveness. Verse 25 And whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It will no longer involve sacrifices at the temple. Forgiveness can be received. And extended wherever you are. This doesn't make sense until we understand what Jesus accomplished that week. But once he accomplished it and we advance far enough to actually appreciate what the writer of the Hebrews has told us about all of this, now we see. Now we see. So, the house of prayer in Jerusalem is condemned and replaced by the praying community. The house of prayer in Jerusalem is condemned and replaced with the praying community. What we're seeing here is the beginning of the new order. 
What we're seeing is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the new community of followers that will be the place of God's dwelling in this world, the center of His activity. As Jesus was the new temple raised up in three days, by faith in Him, the church is now the temple of God. That some of the richest teaching in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians. By faith in Christ, we are now the temple. We are the place where God dwells. We are the one through, whose, through whom His mission is being achieved. We're the ones through whom the kingdom is spreading. This is what the king was coming into his city to achieve. To finally, once for all, provide for his people. This is what happened on the first Palm Sunday, plus the following day or two afterward of the first Holy Week. And this is still what we're celebrating on Palm Sunday today. This also may explain a bit about how such a great reversal of receptivity to Jesus' message happened before this week was finished. He came into Jerusalem acting like a king, but not like the king the people anticipated. And because of that, the tide turned. And what resulted was the eternal plan and purpose of God for Jesus to be crucified for the sins of all who believe and raised again in victory over sin and death as the new temple, the place where God dwells. Through Jesus' actions, at the end of this week, we recognize and receive Him as our King. Even we who are among the nations. And more than just a king, we receive Him as a Savior who reconciles us to God and turns us into the temple, makes us the temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Jew and Gentile together. The one new man of Ephesians chapter 2, made into the dwelling place for God. Paul's description as that great chapter comes to a conclusion. Made into the dwelling place for God on earth until he returns to welcome us into his direct and unshielded presence forever. A glorious expression on the heels of this acknowledgement of Jesus the King and of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus goes in and claims the space that is now rightfully His and is now ready to lay down His life as a ransom for many. We're going to remember that sacrifice this morning as we conclude. I invite those of you who have never trusted Christ as Savior to embrace this great salvation. Christ's death on this week was for the sins, as we said, of all who believe. Trust Him here and now. And you too can be reconciled to God and rejoice in the events of this week. And for those who have already gathered for that purpose today, please join me in prayer. Let's prepare our hearts to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it accomplished for us.
And as I pray, the musicians and communion servers can come to the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the salvation that he has provided. We pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to understand the glories of that salvation and live in light of it. We pray as we have already made known that those who are here who have not trusted Christ as Savior might know the calling of your spirit toward eternal life and cleansing of sin. And for all of us now, Father, as we gather at this table to remember our Lord's death until he comes, enable it to be an act of genuine worship. Enable us to know the cleansing that this sacrifice has provided. And enable us, Lord God, just as Jesus had taught in this text, to extend that to one another as God-honoring, Christ-enabling forgiveness. For your glory and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.